When you think hypnotism, you might imagine a therapist swinging a pocket watch like a metronome in front of a patient's eyes. The hypnotist says something like, you are getting sleepy, while lulling the subject into a comforting trance, or he'll be amenable to suggestion, to all kinds of suggestions. Hear me count to three and snap my fingers. You will remember a time when you had a case of the giggles. On the count of three, you're going to feel the case of the giggles. Come on, one, two, and three. <laughs> and sleep. Hypnotism can be an effective therapeutic tool. And yet, the performance aspect of hypnotism is at odds with the idea of somber medical sessions. What about hypnotism is real? And what is an illusion? This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, the entrancing history of hypnotherapy, including how it grew out of an 18th century idea of animal magnetism, evidence for how it works to ease anxiety and pain, and the origins of that emblematic swinging watch. This episode, in our regular look at critical thinking, evaluates the science of suggestion. Skeptic check hypnosis. I'm going to do a demonstration, deep breath in, relax and sleep. Beautiful. Maybe Tara, you can go relax and sleep. Beautiful. Very good. Watching hypnotists do their stuff on stage is certainly entertaining. They get volunteers to engage in all kinds of behavior while supposedly under their hypnotic spell whether it's making embarrassing confessions or acting in a wacky way. You are a chicken. You peck and you say, bacaw, and you do all the chickeny things. You're a great, amazing chicken. <laughs> well, we laugh at this, but it's also a little spooky, the idea that someone else has access to or can manipulate our unconscious mind, that we might do things against our will. But hypnosis is also supposed to help us with will power. It is touted as a way to quit smoking or lose weight. You know, Seth, one of my favorite books about the potential of hypnosis is from the 1970s, and it's called How You Can Bowl Better Using Self-Hypnosis. Well, i got to admit that's really a striking idea. But meanwhile, some doctors say that hypnosis is a valuable therapeutic tool that can be used to treat serious health conditions, such as chronic pain. It takes a bit of a flight of the imagination to think that a change in your brain can make a real tangible change in how much pain you feel, but that's absolutely the case. Can hypnosis really do all this? Can it tap into the mind-body connection to ease pain, improve our bowling scores, and prompt us to do involuntary poultry imitations on stage? And is the control mechanism for hypnosis really the unconscious mind? Well, it turns out there's a reason that we're struggling with this. Our first task is to distinguish between hypnotherapy and stage hypnosis. They aren't the same. I'm gonna do a demonstration, deep breath in, relax and sleep. Beautiful. Maybe Tara, you can go relax and sleep. Beautiful. Very good. You are a chicken. You do all the chickeny things. My name is Devin Terhune. I'm a member of the Department of Psychology at Goldsmiths University of London. So what is stage hypnosis? 
Um, that's an excellent question. I'm not ready for a, a definition. I'll, I'll put one out there. Basically, I would just say any kind of crowd-based presentation of hypnosis that is typically uh, used for the purpose of entertainment. Now, one thing about chickens. So you have been programmed to be mortally afraid of cucumbers. <laughs> and not performed by a psychotherapist or a doctor. Sure. I mean, in theory, stage hypnosis could be performed by a doctor, and there may be some doctors out there uh, performing stage hypnosis. Certainly none of the hypnosis researchers and clinicians I know would ever, would ever do stage hypnosis, but highly unlikely that they have any type of therapeutic training of any kind. You know, Molly, I saw a hypnotist once. It was part of the nighttime entertainment on a cruise I was on, and the hypnotist asked about a dozen people from the audience to come up on the stage. Were you one of them? No, I was not one of them. <laughs> but she was just speaking to them in a kind of soothing way. She had them lined up in chairs on the stage. And it seemed to me that seven or eight out of the dozen seemed to be hypnotized, and she had them do some sort of funny things. It was very convincing, although I was a little skeptical. However, one thing I did notice is that after she got them up on the stage, she sent three or four of them back into the audience, presumably because she could tell they would not be hypnotizable. So it sounds like she knew that some people were more suggestible than others? Yeah, that's, that's one possibility, and that's the ostensible one. But it's also possible that she was afraid that those people, you know, gave indications that they might just say, this is all a trick or something like that. I don't know. Well, I did ask Dr. Terhune if sometimes volunteers are in on it. I think it's probably going to be variable. I think there are some who are essentially just basically conforming with the, the proceedings, going along with it, maybe even out of a way just to kind of not be embarrassed, to be completely frank, right? So if there are 20 people up on stage and everyone basically is acting out in this peculiar way and you're just sitting there, right, then then you actually become the peculiar one in a way, right? And so I think indeed some people are kind of highly motivated to act out and display unusual behaviors and so on purely out of conformity. I think some people are having genuine real changes in their experience. Some of those might be suggestion effects, but some of them might be other, other effects. And in the context of something like stage hypnosis, it's just this weird mixture of many, many different things right? One simple factor is just when you participate in stage hypnosis, you're signing a social contract where you understand that you have the opportunity to become uninhibited, right? It's very similar to when people go out and drink alcohol. When people go out and drink alcohol, there's this understanding that you're going to do some stupid things, potentially, blah, blah, blah. And uh, there's been many studies with placebos, for example, where when people think they're consuming alcohol, they end up displaying kind of silly behaviors and doing irrational things and so on, even though it's just a placebo, right? So just the entire context is such that it lends itself to acting out in a silly way. It's a very, and the last thing I'll just say is it's very important to emphasize that it's also an entertainment context, right? And it's against that backdrop that most people the vast majority of people participate in stage hypnosis as a kind of an entertaining activity for the audience. And when you say that they sign a social contract, you mean, of course, figuratively. They aren't, you know, colluding with the magician behind, behind the scenes, although that probably goes on as well. Uh, yeah, no, no, purely figuratively. Just like we, we sign social contracts all the time and all sorts of interactions, um, just as a figurative ex expression, right, that... Uh, 
you take on the role of a particular actor in a particular context and there are implicit rules about how you're supposed to behave in certain contexts and so on. And so, um, you know, that type of situation. So it sounds, Molly, like the problem is you don't have all the variables controlled in stage hypnosis, right? Some people might be actually hypnotized. Others are just conforming to the situation in which they're expected to perform because they're up on stage. Right. So this is something different than clinical hypnosis. But by the way, Seth, Dr. Terhune said that stage hypnosis is safe. It's not dangerous. Although occasionally, he said, some volunteers might report having a negative response with participating because it can be really unsettling to feel like you're being manipulated. Okay, there's one more misleading association with hypnosis we should address right now. That is its most recognized symbol. And that is the swinging watch. Seth, have you ever carried a pocket watch? I have, yeah. I mean, if you look at men's suits, at least the the last couple I bought, they, they usually have a pocket specially for your watch. I think that's as closely tied to hypnotism as those twisted snakes uh, are tied to conventional medicine. Where did that swinging watch come from? Well, we're not sure when the swinging pocket watch was first used. It is the case that the early hypnotists thought that the fixed gaze could be used to induce a hypnotic trance, and the watch was a handy object for the eye to fixate on because so many men carried them in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And it, too, seems to have gained popularity because of its theatrical function, which has been echoed in the movies. But as an icon, it has persisted to the exasperation of clinical hypnotists. As soon as you see the swinging watch, most people automatically think of hypnosis. It's a little bit disappointing because it just kind of promulgates these kind of myths and these misconceptions about the very nature of hypnosis. But it's something that the field has had a very difficult time basically shedding this association such that one of the top journals in academic psychology about 13 years ago published a review article on hypnosis. The journal is called Trends in Cognitive Sciences. Very prestigious, very highly respected journal. So they published an article on hypnosis on the cover. They had the swinging watch, right? So they were happy to still participate in this kind of widespread idea. Um, But it's important to emphasize uh, for listeners that uh, there's no basis for that whatsoever. You do not need a a watch, you do not need anything necessarily to fixate on. Uh, all you really need are just the words of an experimenter or a clinician. Was yeah. the watch ever used? Yeah, I think the watch uh, was used uh, fairly widely, probably up and even until uh, the early 20th century. Um, I think probably in the early to mid 20th century, though, uh, people stopped using the watch. It was probably more in the therapeutic context. I've never heard of any proper experimental research, even going back to the, uh, you know, the really good experimental work primarily started in the 1930s uh, with decent experimental research on hypnosis. And uh, I've never heard of any of that work, even from the 30s onwards, using the watch. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad association. I mean, if hypnosis is linked to a watch, I don't really have any concerns compared with if it is linked to stage hypnosis, that would be something very concerning for us. And I think the broader experimental and clinical hypnosis community. We'll hear more from Devin Terhune about the history of hypnosis later in the show. By the way, that review of hypnosis that uh, he mentioned in the journal Trends in Cognitive Sciences, well, we looked that up to see what it said, and it, it said that hypnosis has a basis for altering the brain, there's a mechanism, and consequently should be investigated for its possible therapeutic value. Well, that was 13 years ago, and it has since been investigated. 
Now, we've heard some examples of what hypnotherapy is not. It's not what you see on stage. It is a legitimate form of therapy. But how does it work? Could it be a way of introducing suggestion into the unconscious? And you may wonder how easily could you be hypnotized? Well, it turns out you may be more familiar with the hypnotic state than you realize. Hypnosis is really just a form of highly focused attention. I'm David Spiegel. I'm a Wilson professor and associate chair of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. It's like getting so caught up in a good movie that you forget you're watching the movie and you enter the imagined world. It's like looking through the telephoto lens in a camera. What you see, you see with great detail, but it's devoid of context. And so it involves intensity of focus, kind of cognitive flexibility, a, a willingness or ability to try some new ideas and see what it feels like to experience them. And in order to do that, it involves dissociation, separating different aspects of your experience. So right now, for example, you have sensations in your bottom touching your chair. Hopefully you weren't aware of that until I mentioned it. If you were, we could stop the interview now. Um, our brains do it all the time, but you do it in a more extreme way when you intensify your focal attention. So, okay, uh, it, it sounds like uh, let's shut down all the other sensory messages to my brain, and I'm concentrating on one thing. It's, it's, it's kind of like a tunnel vision. I mean, it sounds like that's what it is, but couldn't one do that, you know, on one's own? I mean, I, I could just decide to focus entirely on, on a book I'm reading or, you know, a YouTube video I'm looking at, and am I hypnotized? As a matter of fact, there is evidence uh, from a researcher at the University of Minnesota, Aki Telegan, uh, showing that people who are more highly hypnotizable have more of these self-altering experiences that he calls absorption. So in fact, you can enter a hypnotic state if you've got the ability very rapidly without any formal induction. And people who are highly hypnotizable are in and out of hypnotic-like states all the time. You've apparently hypnotized thousands of people. Is that true? I have. I've, I estimate about 7,000 people in my uh, career, yes. Well, you have a wonderful baritone. I'm sure you hear that frequently. I wonder, <laughs> I, I wonder if that plays a role when you hypnotize someone. I mean, could you hypnotize our listeners with your voice? Well, I already have, actually, and I'm sure they're enjoying it. <laughs> we'll hear more from Dr. Spiegel about how he is using hypnosis for his patients who are experiencing pain later in the show. But you know, Seth, I'm thinking about what it would take to be hypnotized after your chat there with David Spiegel. And it brings to mind this funny moment in the BBC show, The Detectorist. Do you know that show? Well, lamentably, Molly, I don't know it. Well, this is a scene when the uptight character Lance finds himself in a hypnotist's office after being urged to use the therapy to unwind. Success depends on you being able to completely switch off, trust my voice, and let it carry you away. I suppose it'd be difficult if you had a, an annoying accent or a squeaky voice. So try and put those sorts of thoughts out of your mind for a while. Try to empty your mind. I will do exactly as you say. Just relax and listen. So, I want you to imagine that you are lying on soft, warm sand on a beach. You can just enjoy the sun all day. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, um, I'm very sensitive to the sun. I, I burn very easily. I wouldn't just sunbathe. Um, have you got a, 
one of those sunshades. Maybe I could sit under one of those big umbrellas. Yes, do that. Right, here we go. Back on the beach. Carry on. Stage hypnosis and hypnotherapy are different, but they evolve from a common past. How did the non-scientific idea of animal magnetism lay the foundation for a legitimate psychological technique? There were no magnets formally involved. It was kind of more about passing the hands over people. Next, the history of hypnosis. It's our regular look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science. In this episode, we look at the science of suggestibility. This is Skeptic Check Hypnosis. We've established that stage hypnotism is different from hypnotherapy, but the perception of hypnosis is also shaped strongly by how it's portrayed in culture and entertainment, where it seems that a hypnotist can play the strings of our subconscious like a violin. The movies occasionally touch on those supposed darker powers. The secrets of the past are revealed, for example, with a distressing outcome through a hypnotic trance in the movie Dead Again. How far back are you? 1948. Hypnosis can take us back to our past lives. You expect me just to run with that? There's a lot more people on this planet who believe in past lives than don't. And of course, the movie that raises the unpleasant possibility that hypnotism could prompt people to do things against their own moral code, The Manchurian Candidate. I am sure you've all heard the old wives' tale that no hypnotized subject may be forced to do that which is repellent to his moral nature, whatever that may be. Nonsense, of course. Now then, Raymond, take this scarf and strangle Ed Mavoli uh, to death. In real life, there are echoes of, if not exactly mind control, then memory manipulation in the claims that hypnosis can help unlock hidden or repressed memories. And this was a belief that gained a lot of attention in the 1990s and the early 2000s before it was debunked. It's one of the examples of the public misunderstanding of hypnotism that cognitive neuroscientist Devin Terhune addresses in this next conversation. He covers the long history of hypnosis from its early mystical associations to how it came to be grounded in science. Hypnotism goes back at least a millennium to the work of a Persian physician who wrote about mind-body connections in the year 1027. But in the West, the modern theory of hypnosis emerged from a man whose name you already know from the word mesmerize. The Viennese physician Franz Mesmer believed that a magnetic force or a fluid that ran through people's bodies could be used to control them. And he coined a phrase that we now use to describe strong physical attraction. He came up with this idea of animal magnetism, that there was this universal magnetic fluid that you could pass from one individual to another, often by kind of hand motions and moving your hands over someone's body or towards someone's body. This had various types of healing properties. So he thought that there was some kind of fluid running through us, and I believe he thought it was something a physician or someone like him could control? 
Exactly. So he so he thought there was this magnetic fluid that kind of permeated all or most living things and that some individuals had control over it. Now, obviously, this is a, you know, really a bit of a crazy idea to us now, but it is important to not be too anachronistic. And you have to realize that at that point in time, our you know, understanding of magnetism was very much in its infancy, right? Now, there were obviously people were skeptical of the idea at the time, of course, but it should it should be perceived and recognized in light of the historical context of that. I think that is important to be bear in mind. Now, was Dr. Mesmer's idea that you had to use a magnet then to control the fluid within somebody? And then what would that allow you to get them to do? Is Was that the goal, to get them to do something? There were no magnets formally involved. It was kind of more about passing the hands over people or motioning to them. And this is actually a, um, you'll see this in stage hypnosis to this day or in depictions of hypnosis, this type of movement with the hands. And that really just harkens back to uh, Mesmer uh, and animal magnetism. Uh, but he believed that you could magnetize objects. So you could like magnetize a tree and then other people would go and touch it and get a therapeutic response, basically. A therapeutic response to what sorts of illnesses and conditions? I, I can't say too much about all the different types of conditions that were coming, but I believe it was it was viewed almost as a, like a panacea, right? But you know, so and that's always <laughs> whenever something is viewed as working with every type of uh, symptom or condition, that's always something you should make you a bit nervous about, right? Um, I'm pretty sure that he kind of viewed it as beneficial to a wide range of different types of conditions, yeah. You said that there was some skepticism around animal magnetism, and one of those skeptics was a king, King Louis XVI, commissioned a panel uh, to investigate the scientific claims made by those who supported this hypothesis, I suppose, of animal magnetism. What came of that? Yeah, so this is a, a nice little footnote in the annals of medicine and the history of science, actually. So basically, uh, they commissioned this inquiry that was led by Benjamin Franklin, actually, um, who I believe at the time was maybe an ambassador to France or something like that. I think he was he was based there at least part of the year or something like that. Um, included another a number of other uh, luminaries. Um, Lavoisier, for example, was on the panel. He was an incredibly important chemist for that time period. Um, and basically, what they end up doing was basically appears to be the first proper record of what we now call a double-blind experiment. And so that's why it's actually a really nice kind of little footnote in the history of, of science, basically. In double-blind studies where there are pills involved, there are pills involved. So you give some people the pill or the medicine that you're trying to test, and then you give others a placebo, maybe it's just a sugar pill. But how do you perform animal magnetism and not perform animal magnetism or mesmerism on a patient? Uh, so um, they would do it through a, a way that we briefly discussed earlier, which is by uh, magnetizing trees. They would uh, uh, apply the magnetic fluid to trees, and then people would go and touch the trees and receive therapeutic benefits from them, right? That was, that was the part of the claim of animal magnetism. So in the double-blind experiments, basically what would happen is the magnetizer would treat some trees with the magnetic fluid, others without, Right, So you'd have kind of magnetized trees versus control trees. And then you'd have people come and they would receive information that either the tree was magnetized or not in the simple two by two type of design. And so basically what they found, which was really critical, was 
you know, people were responding and having genuine benefits from the animal magnetism. But what they found out through that double blind experiment was it turned out that the only ingredient that was actually important was that you received information that you were receiving the animal magnetism. And you benefited from that even if you didn't actually receive it, just being told that you were going to receive the treatment, right? So in contemporary parlance, this is what we would refer to basically as a suggestion effect, or you might want to call it a placebo effect. Moving along from animal magnetism to actual hypnosis, it was Franz Mesmer's work that laid the foundation for hypnotism, and the Scottish surgeon James Braid uh, brought us the actual term. Devin, who was he, and how did he claim that hypnosis worked? Um, sure. So he was a um, British physician. Um, I believe he was primarily working as a surgeon, and he likened the phenomenon of hypnosis, which had had already been linked with you know this trance-like phenomena, these sleep-like states. He generated the term hypnotism from the Greek word hypnos to refer to sleep, and because he conceptualizes a sleep-like state that could be induced through a hypnotic induction and various types of instructions and suggestions where an individual was more responsive to verbal suggestions. So the types of verbal suggestions that are administered in a wide variety of different types of therapeutic and experimental contexts, things like you will find that your pain will begin to reduce. That's just a simple verbal suggestion. And so he claimed that basically this hypnotic state was conducive to leading to an increase in responsiveness to verbal suggestions. And in the 19th century, uh, it's important to emphasize hypnosis was widely, widely used um, for pain management and was used in surgeries and things like that prior to the introduction of drugs such as ether, for example, which became incredibly widespread and at that point basically supplanted uh, the use of hypnosis on a wide scale. Well, Devin, what are some of the general misconceptions about hypnosis that gathered from this point on when it was beginning to be seen as a viable therapy? We could spend hours talking about all the different crazy things that happened in the context of public imagination of hypnosis. But briefly, just this broad notion that hypnosis is some type of trance-like state, it remains incredibly controversial amongst academics. There is no robust evidence for this at a neurophysiological level based on brain research, for example. Um, But if we talk about some of the grandiose ideas, one is that uh, you have spontaneous amnesia, so you forget everything that happened during hypnosis. This is a widespread idea. This is completely false. That does not happen at all. Uh, The other common idea is that you lose control of yourself during hypnosis, and this is really critical that you basically, your experience of volition is completely disrupted, and the hypnotist can get you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise uh, do. Um, and potentially perform immoral acts. And there are isolated cases of this that kind of capture the public imagination because they appear in news outlets. Uh, you, you and your listeners may or may not have heard of these cases, but there were a couple of well-publicized cases of robberies using hypnosis in Europe over the last 10 or 15 years. And the difficult part becomes at what point did hypnosis play an essential ingredient in that process? Right. And that that's where it gets really thorny. Devin, there are controversies about how hypnosis is used in the 1990s. Patients learned that memories of childhood abuse that they had repressed 
then reclaimed, supposedly reclaimed under hypnosis were false. So there are two things that happened 30 years ago. You had a whole wave of discussions about people who were reclaiming these memories, followed later by psychologists saying that the hypnosis may cause false memories. And some people's lives were really damaged by that. How was that debate of recovered memory resolved? And do people still use hypnosis to access repressed memories today? I know it's a really big question, but we would be remiss if we didn't touch on this. No, I mean, it's very understandable. I mean, that was one of the kind of the uh, the biggest controversies of the last few decades, and it ties into this uh, Another major misconception about hypnosis, which also tie, which is also closely linked to broader misunderstanding about the nature of memory, right? So it's very common for people to believe that memories are stored in the brain permanently and that they are accessible. Um, and we now know that that is not necessarily true, such that we forget and um, the memories that we have are lost right and not only that but every time we retrieve a memory we're potentially subtly changing it in very different ways and eventually you get to the point where you don't actually have the memory of the original event but you've basically just retrieved it many times over the years and you have this kind of more abstract representation of the event outside of the context of hypnosis there are uh, still some people who argue, even in a contemporary experimental research, that there are various types of strategies that can be used to help you forget something, and that in theory you might be able to recover some memories. But on the whole, um, the notion of recovered memory remains very controversial. In the context of hypnosis, you're completely correct. We now know, and we've known since the late 70s, early 80s, that hypnosis is incredibly uh, useful one of its downsides is that it's very good at inducing false memories. And this is part of the reason why hypnotically recovered memories are no longer allowed in courts of law in numerous countries, just because of this simple fact that you can potentially induce a false memory. Now, this largely kind of arose out of the idea that a lot of clinicians and therapists using hypnosis, one, they believed in repressed memories, but they also believed that Trauma and various types of symptoms were a direct consequence of having suffered from childhood abuse. Um, and so coupled with these kind of assumptions in the background, they were basically kind of often looking for trauma, right? They were looking for trauma and cueing participants and then um, in turn basically inducing false memories of trauma. You know, the last thing I just want to briefly say, and I think a, a point that kind of nicely illustrates this, is that there's a lot of research showing recovered memories of alien abduction also occurred in the context of hypnosis, in which when you present with certain symptoms to a therapist, that was suggestive of an individual having been an abductee, right? And so then you kind of cue them and suggest to them, and then you can easily recover these memories. And... Uh, you know, the myriad number of cases of that, I think, is quite illustrative of an example of how you can use hypnotic suggestion to induce false memories. And that also applies, again, not to all cases of hypnotically recovered memory of abuse, but at least some of them. Devin Terhune, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Devin Terhune is a cognitive neuroscientist in the Department of Psychology at Goldsmiths University of London.
So if hypnotism can't be used to make us do those things, what can it do? This psychiatrist says it's a powerful substitute for opiates in pain management. And the third group were taught self-hypnosis. And that group, they had 20% of the pain that the standard care group did. They were using half as much opioids. What this says about the role of the mind in the experience of pain, and why our hang-ups about hypnosis are keeping us from harnessing its therapeutic potential. It's our regular look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science. In this episode, the science of suggestion. It's skeptic check, hypnosis. Now, we've heard what clinical hypnosis is not. For example, it won't cause you to succumb to a therapist's spell, lose consciousness or memory, or prompt you to squawk like a chicken on stage. The history of hypnosis has taken us through its woolier beginnings. I'm still thinking about the possible healing effect of those magnetized trees. Well, Stanford psychiatrist David Spiegel describes how hypnosis emerged from all of that to become, in the late 20th century, a recognized form of psychotherapy. From the middle of the last century, there began to be a body of research in which we realized that we could measure people's hypnotizability, that they differ, and you could use that to then study differences between people who were high and low in hypnotizability and how they responded to hypnosis. We began to study the psychophysiology of hypnosis, looking at what happened in the brain when people were hypnotized. And we began doing randomized clinical trials of the effects of hypnosis. So we began to be able to study it in the 1950s and 60s, the same way we would study any other kind of medical or psychiatric treatment. Dr. Spiegel, who has more than 40 years of clinical and research experience, says that hypnosis has also proven useful in fighting pain, even the pain that we treat with our most powerful drugs. And he says that hypnosis could help curb the opioid epidemic, as well as treat anxiety and addiction more extensively if we could just get over our hang-ups about it. Well, hypnosis is highly effective for helping people with pain. And Lord knows we need help with that, given that we're losing 50 to 60,000 Americans a year in, in drug, fentanyl, opioid overdoses. Um, hypnosis is much safer than that. And we have shown in randomized clinical trials that it's highly effective in, in treating both acute and chronic pain. So during surgical procedures where general anesthesia isn't used, we can reduce pain by up to 80%, reduce anxiety by that much as well, uh, use less medication and have fewer complications. Uh, it's very useful for cancer patients dealing with chronic pain. You know, every new ache in their chest they think is a recurrence of the cancer. And you can use hypnosis to alter their perception of pain. The strain in pain lies mainly in the brain, and hypnosis can help manage pain signals a lot better. Uh, it's very useful for stress, um, for helping people deal with everyday stressors or even uh, traumatic stress, uh, because you can teach people in hypnosis to dissociate 
their physiological arousal from their psychological arousal. It's like a snowball effect. You worry about something, your muscles get tense, you start to sweat, you feel your heart rate go up, and you think, oh God, this is really bad, and you get more stressed. And with hypnosis, you can control the physiological reaction and then start to deal with the stress better. We use it to help people uh, focus their attention better, to concentrate better, to plan their workday and be more productive doing it. We help people stop smoking. We get one out of five people to stop smoking, just teaching them to use self-hypnosis. And we're using it also to help people eat better and, and lose weight. So those are some of the common applications of hypnosis. Some of these sound like conditions where you can have a control group and you can actually do an experiment where you say, okay, uh, these people are suffering pain from whatever, and uh, some of them will treat with uh, opioids and the others will treat with hypnosis, and you can see the difference in the uh, effects. I mean, it's a significant signal. It's not just uh, wishful thinking or anything like that. We published a paper in The Lancet, the leading British medical journal, in 2000, randomized clinical trial, 241 subjects, three conditions, Uh, They were all getting invasive radiological procedures, arterial cutdowns, and we had uh, 80 getting standard care. They could push a button and give themselves IV opioids. Another 80 who had that plus a friendly nurse just providing comfort. And the third group of about the same size were taught self-hypnosis. And that group had, after an hour and a half, they had... um, 20% of the pain that the standard care group did. They were using half as much opioids. Uh, They had no anxiety at all. I was afraid they were dead, whereas the standard care group had substantial anxiety. They got their procedures done 17 minutes quicker because it was easier to do the procedures. And the medical staff was less anxious too, and they had fewer complications. Randomized trial in the Lancet. If it were a drug that did that, every hospital in the country would be using it. But people still remain, despite the evidence, skeptical, irrationally skeptical about hypnosis. It's safe and effective. So maybe you should describe, you know, what it's like to go under hypnosis. I've I've seen videos of you hypnotizing somebody there at Stanford, and, you know, it didn't take very long. Mm. It was like a one- or two-minute exercise, and it was hard for me to tell that he was actually under hypnosis, but that's what he said about himself. So, you know, what, what happens? Hypnosis is just a shift in, in attention for people who have the ability, which is about two-thirds of adults and most children uh, are highly hypnotizable. And it's just a matter of narrowing the focus of attention, turning inward. So typically the induction can be very quick. It can happen in less than a minute. Um, and what's going on in their brain is that they're turning down activity in the anterior cingulate, in the salience network. So you're less likely to worry about why this is happening, what's going on, what else might be going on. You're increasing connectivity between the executive control network and the frontal cortex and the insula, which is a brain-body conduit that helps you better control what's going on in your body. And you're, finding, you're forming an inverse functional connectivity between this executive control network and a part of the brain in the back, the posterior cingulate cortex, that is part of the default mode network. That's the part of the brain that's active when you're just engaging in self-reflection. It's a part of the brain where activity gets turned down during meditation. You're supposed to disconnect from your self as, a, as selfhood. And it's what triggers dissociation, disconnecting what you're doing from who you are. And it's why people can do things that surprise themselves or that are inconsistent with what they're usually like. So it's a very rapid shift in attentional focus. But how would that, you know, 
alter my behavior. I mean, if I'm a smoker, you know, I'm, I'm addicted to it. That's what the word they use. And, uh, you know, my brain is craving that next cigarette. Have I reprogrammed my brain in some sense? Yes, you have. Uh, you're saying, okay, that's the way I think about it. But you know what? I have a lot of impulses that I don't act on. So the fact that I have a craving or a desire uh, doesn't mean I have to do it. So you put the craving in perspective and you say, on the one hand, yes, I would like a smoke. On the other hand, am I going to be able to live with myself if I keep putting poison into the lungs of my own body, which is dependent on me? Make a choice. And we make those kinds of choices all the time. You fasten a seatbelt when you get in a car. You look both ways when you cross the street. Most of the time we do things that aren't a lot of fun, but we do them out of respect for protecting our bodies and our safety. And so you just get people to think differently about what they're doing. The fact that it can treat pain. I mean, I think of pain as some sort of, you know, hardwired behavior. You know, it's automatic. It's not something under my conscious control. But, you know, that's exactly right. But, we, you know, there are athletes who break their ankle during a football game and don't notice it until the coach at the end says, your ankle is swollen. What's going on? So all the time, our brains are managing the input. And pain is not just injured tissue. It's the transmission of information from the injured tissue through the lateral spinothalamic tract up into the brain and how the brain processes that information. And so all of that is part of the pain experience. And the central processing is a crucial part of it. And that's the part we pay the least attention to. Okay, well, that certainly begged the question of if this is so effective and without the addiction as a side effect, you know, let's forestall using OxyContin and let's all move in this direction. And that doesn't seem to have happened. Well, it hasn't. And just the same thing that gave us the problem with OxyContin is that there was a big aggressive industry marketing it like crazy. And, uh, you know, who's, who's going to make money uh, selling hypnosis? You know, we don't use dangling watches anymore, so the watchmakers won't do it. So part of the problem is that we don't have a marketing uh, arm that's going around pushing it. It's, it's uh, something that people can learn. There's no actual product. So, you know, the big advantage that we have as humans evolutionarily is the opposing thumb, which is a good thing, and this big brain but we don't get a user's manual. We have not taken full advantage of the fact that the brain is connected to every single organ in the body and it controls a lot of it, much more than we give credit for. Uh, we did a study once where we put down nasogastric tubes, had people eat imaginary meals, and we got an 89% increase in secretion of gastric acid. One woman after half an hour said, let's stop. She was imagine, eating imaginary meals at good restaurants. She said, let's stop, I'm full after half an hour. Our brains have much more control over our bodies than we give them credit for. There, there are other ways one could, uh, if you will, uh, maybe re-engineer the brain using uh, psilocybin, which is a hallucinogen, or uh, meditation, even placebos, right? I mean, is there a fundamental right. difference between what these do and what hypnosis does? It's a very interesting question, Seth. Um, there are certainly a number of lessons that come from these other approaches like psilocybin uh, and meditation. One of them is that we are rewiring our brain all the time. Neurons that fire together wire together. And as we use our brains differently, we actually do change our brains. And we do that with things like hypnosis, with, with meditation too. Meditation is different in that it's very Eastern. It's not... It's not 
there for a purpose to solve a problem. Um, it's just a, a state of being that allows you to have open presence to just let feelings and thoughts flow through you and not judge them and not try to change them or resist them. Uh, it's to develop compassion with people. It's to be aware of your body. But it's, it's meant to be a practice that you engage in regularly and feel differently as you do it. Hypnosis, we don't try to uh, encourage people to be hypnotized all the time. We encourage them to use hypnosis to solve a problem. So it's much more Western, much more problem-focused. The lesson from psilocybin is very interesting. And there is some evidence that you reboot the brain. There are people um, who have had... Uh, psilocybin to deal with end-of-life care. I've worked a lot with dying cancer patients. It's a tough spot to be in, but there are studies now that show. I, I you know, I wouldn't think you, you, you I, I'd worry about a bad trip if I were dying of cancer and taking psilocybin. But you know what? People emerge from this often saying, I could think about dying, but I also came to appreciate my ability to experience anything. And uh, I feel differently about it now. So it underscores the fact that changing mental states is a powerful tool. Why, why is this not making a bigger impact? And I, I'm making a value judgment when I even say that. But, you know, uh, my, my physician doesn't ever suggest, well, hypnosis might help in this case. I mean, what's the reluctance? Uh, I wish I knew, uh, Seth. I've been struggling with that my entire career. I, uh, you know, we're sort of the Rodney Dangerfield of specialties. You know, we don't get no respect. Uh, Dangerfield said they once asked him to leave a bar so they could start happy hour. You know, it's, it's one of those. <laughs> we somehow, um, we have this prejudice that the only way to really treat someone is incision injection or ingestion. You've got to treat the body like it's a car with a part that's wrong and fix it. Now, sometimes that's exactly right. That's what you have to do when you've got a dislocating shoulder or you need to remount your coronary arteries. But a lot of times, managing the body differently and better works. But it's just not considered the real change, the real thing that will make a difference. And yet it absolutely is. I had a woman, young woman, uh, pregnant in her seventh month, had very bad lower back disease, um, and uh, they couldn't use meds because she was uh, pregnant. Um, they implanted a nerve stimulator. That didn't work, and she comes to see me in desperation. The, the bigger the baby gets, the more pain she's in. And her pain during the hypnosis exercise I did went from 7 out of 10 to 3 out of 10. And she opened her eyes and said to me, why were you the last doctor I got sent to instead of the first? And it's, it's really a shame. People, it takes a, a bit of a flight of the imagination to think that a change in your brain can make a real tangible change in how much pain you feel. But that's absolutely the case. And I've been struggling with this throughout my career. I know hypnosis had this kind of weird start and everybody's been to some show in high school where a stage hypnotist makes a fool out of the football coach by getting him to dance like a ballerina. Uh, but, you know, there have been, you know, snake oil salesmen for drugs, too. There is the opioid disaster where these companies have talked people into getting addicted to drugs that kill them. So, you know, any treatment will have sides of it that don't look very good. But the risk-benefit ratio with managing your brain better is so much more favorable and, you know, the worst thing that happens when I use hypnosis with someone is it doesn't work. And then we do something else. I prescribe meds, too. But it is, it, it's one of these things where we need to re-educate ourselves about the crucial role that our brains play in making our lives better. 
David Spiegel, thanks so very much for speaking with us. You're most welcome, Seth. Dr. Spiegel is a psychiatrist and a behavioral scientist at Stanford University School of Medicine. Well, Seth, this brings us to the big picture and our skeptical look at hypnosis. What are your takeaways? Yeah, well, it's skeptic check, but I feel like I was the one that was checked because honestly, you know, I've always regarded hypnosis with a lot of skepticism. To me, it wasn't clear that it wasn't just, you know, some sort of stagecraft. But listening to Dr. Spiegel, you know, and the kind of tests that he does, and of course, the fact that he has standing in the academic community and so forth, all those things point to the fact that there's something real here. That's right. And I have to say, I was with you. I was skeptical too going into this. I thought that hypnosis was a gimmick (laughs) and it was mainly a form of entertainment. And as Dr. Spiegel says, if it doesn't work, it's not harmful. You can try something else, but, but it might just work and we should give it a chance. He made the point that the brain has a lot of potential to heal the body, and we're not exploiting that potential. And also that I think the ridiculousness of stage hypnotism has dissuaded people from taking therapeutic hypnosis seriously and at least giving it a chance. I I, I say give it a try. And the fact that, you know, the FDA would demand efficacy and safety, whether safety is not an issue, right? As you just said, it's definitely safe. The only question is, To what degree is it efficacious? And it sounds like in certain circumstances, it's very efficacious. Right. This emphasized that there is a powerful mind-body connection and that the mind can be refocused to a powerful effect. Well, thanks to the mesmerizing talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary, who helped make Big Picture Science possible. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other endeavors, promotes critical thinking. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. Original music in the show by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This Skeptic Check episode of Big Picture Science that looked at the science of suggestibility and alternatives for pain treatment is called Skeptic Check Hypnosis. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.